Good morning. I'm delighted to bring God's Word to you this morning. If you're a guest with us, this is the part of our service where we open God's Word and we read it together and talk about how to apply it to our lives. And so I encourage you now to open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 794. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes, from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask now that you would lift our eyes above, that we may meditate on your invincible power, by which you can overcome all the hindrances of this world. May we, in these next moments, by the power of your Spirit, receive your grace and persevere in confident hope that every one of us may devote to you our labors until the end and never faint or burn out in the work of promoting the spiritual building of your church. Until at last, we shall be gathered to to offer to you our eternal sacrifice of praise and triumphant thanksgiving on seeing perfected what at this day has only begun. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you deal with discouragement? How do you keep going when there is little to show for your labors? It's easy to preach to if thousands flock to hear your every word. Easy to counsel people whose lives are healed by your wisdom. Easy to lead when others are eager to follow. But how do you cope when the reality is the reverse? And it seems that all of your efforts go for nothing. What if you are called to be a part of the church in a day of small things? When mighty acts of God seem in short supply... There's a great temptation to trust more fervently in our own might or skill, or to despair altogether of ever seeing anything significant happening. We see these temptations even in our passage this morning. The joy and the optimism that surrounded Israel's release from captivity soon faded as the disappointing realities of life settled in. Israel had passed through God's judgment, they'd returned to the promised land, But now they were only a tiny remnant in a foreign nation. Their national autonomy was gone. The temple lacked its former glory. And Zerubbabel, the son of David, 
was not a king, but only a governor serving under the lordship of the Persian emperor. Many in the community regarded their day as a day of small things, and their efforts in obedience to the Lord as little significance. Doubt, complacency, perhaps even resignation took root in the hearts of God's people. But God had a word of hope and encouragement for his people. By his grace, the Lord would supply Zerubbabel with the power of his spirit to ensure the temple's completion and overcome all the obstacles that threatened the work. And this vision contains an important message for the community. They must not despise the day of small things. For the kingdom of God is an overwhelmingly great reality, and participation in it is a wonderful privilege. And this vision not only reminded them of the significance of what they were called to do, but of the great resources that enabled them to do it. Leaders raised up and empowered by God, the grace of God supplied to them by His servants, and above all, God's personal presence among them by His Spirit. God, who had called them to build the temple, would surely sustain them to the end. He would keep the lampstand burning. Well, this same vision that fires the book of Zechariah should fire our lives as well. In many ways, nothing has changed. We who recognize God as keen are still a minority. And we live out our lives in a world that, for the most part, does not. Progress in the work of the kingdom is often slow and discouraging, beset with difficulties and opposition. In a world where we often seem powerless, we need, again and again, to have our vision enlarged, to be reminded that it is not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit that His work is done and His kingdom purposes are advanced. So here's the big idea that I want us to believe today. Press on in building God's beautiful temple because God will supply everything we need by His Spirit. But how would Zechariah encourage us to press on in the work? What does it mean to build God's temple? That's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 4, 1 through 14, and I want us to see four encouragements for God's discouraged people. Four encouragements for God's discouraged people. We'll see first, recognize the splendor of God's sanctuary. Second, receive the supply of God's servants. Third, rely on the strength of God's spirit. And then lastly, rejoice in the significance of God's small things. The structure of this passage is like a sandwich. There are two parts of the vision. You got the golden lampstand in verses 1 through 5, and then the two olive trees and the two branches in verses 11 through 14. And then there are two words from the Lord. There's the word to Zerubbabel in verses 6 through 7, and the word to Zechariah in verses 8 through 10. So we'll consider the two pieces of bread first, and then we'll look at the two pieces of meat in the middle. And the first encouragement that I want us to consider together is to recognize the splendor of God's sanctuary. Recognize the splendor of God's sanctuary. Look at verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my lord. So it's the middle of the night, on February 15th, 519 B.C., in the middle of the ruined city of Jerusalem. God's people have returned from exile in Babylon and they've begun to rebuild. But the work on the temple had stalled completely and had been remained unfinished for 17 years since the foundation stones were laid. And so Zechariah had been sent by the Lord to minister to God's people as they resumed the reconstruction project. 
And the Lord is giving him a series of eight dramatic visions all in this one night, one after the other, each designed to encourage the people to persevere in this work. And so far, four of these visions have passed. And as we turn now to the fifth vision, we find our prophet in something of a stupor. Look at verse 1 again. And the angel who talked to me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. The simile tells us Zechariah wasn't actually sleeping, but he was, he was in that half-conscious, dazed uh, battle that we often face when sleep has eluded us. It's been a long night. And so the angel has to rouse him to get him focused again for round five. And the angel, perhaps to keep Zechariah alert, engages his senses with a question. He asks in verse 2, what do you see? And Zechariah describes his vision. There's a golden lampstand with a wide bowl fixed at the top of the central stand, and there are seven smaller lamps fixed to the rim of that larger bowl. And each of these has seven lips into which the wick would be placed so that when lit, this lampstand would have 49 flames. Seven lamps with seven wicks on each lamp, all of them burning brightly. And beside the lamp, right, feeding it with a constant supply of oil, are these two olive trees, one on each side. This they do, as verse 12 explains, by means of two golden pipes, giving a steady flow of oil to keep the lamps burning. Now, it would have been a beautiful, if rather mysterious, image. And Zechariah finds it quite impenetrable, at least at first. He asks in verse 4, What are these, my Lord? That's encouraging, isn't it? When even the prophet struggles to understand what's in front of him. There are times, let's be honest, when the scriptures are hard to understand and we don't get it. Zechariah certainly feels that way about this fifth vision. And as I studied this this week, I felt that way too. <laughs> like, what is this, my Lord? That's a great question, by the way, to ask the Lord when you're reading the Bible. It's a question that he asks again in verse 11 and again in verse 12. Right? Just pressing for an explanation. And just as an aside, I do think we ought to be encouraged by that. Not just that Zechariah doesn't understand, but that he wasn't willing to settle for a lack of understanding. He persists in seeking clarity. God's word is difficult sometimes, but we ought to learn from his example to, to keep pursuing a deeper understanding. Solomon exhorted his son in Proverbs 2, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Paul told Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Develop the mindset that when you come to a difficult passage, you find in it an invitation to do the hard work of digging for diamonds. Press on. Pray for illumination. You will find, as Zechariah found here, precious truth that will feed your faith. Well, the angel responds to Zechariah with a mild rebuke, actually. Do you not know what these are? You're the prophet. Apparently, he should have known something of their significance. The lampstand should have brought to mind the seven-branched menorah that was placed in the tabernacle under Moses. Or perhaps the seven golden lampstands that were in Solomon's temple. And here, Zechariah sees another golden lampstand, once again, in the context of the temple. And so the immediate significance here is, this temple is going to be rebuilt. After all, what good is a lampstand without a temple? We have here a synecdoche, a part representing the whole. By showing him the lampstand, God is also promising the house for the lampstand, the temple. And as we'll see in a moment, Zerubbabel's hands will complete the project. God's power, by His Spirit, will guarantee it. And this should encourage the Jews. Press on. Press on in the work. But did you notice something different about this lampstand? When we read the Bible, we, we don't just want to look for similarities. We want to see what the differences are. Zechariah's lampstand doesn't look like the seven-branched menorah that stood in the original tabernacle or in the temple. In fact, the precise configuration of this lampstand has been debated by scholars, with little to no consensus about what it looked like. 
But that may very well be the point. There's, there's dissonance here. This is not simply a return to the old lampstands. There are echoes of the older lampstands, but this lampstand is larger and grander and brighter. Forty-nine flames burn around it, and it never runs out of oil. It's a super menorah, we might say. The heavenly vision far surpasses the earthly lampstands that once adorned the now desolate temple. Now, how would this encourage God's people? They were faced with the rubble of a broken-down temple in the midst of a ruined city. They were a tiny remnant of a once large and prosperous people. No longer an independent country, they now existed at the whim of the pagan emperor Darius. Their homeland had been reduced to the burned-over Babylonian province of Judah. They were not an impressive sight. In fact, they were a poor, embattled, and beleaguered minority, surrounded by people who wanted nothing so much as their failure and defeat. The golden lampstands that once stood in the temple were long gone, and it might have been tempting to think that just like those lampstands, the beauty of God's covenant people had been lost forever. All that was left was this burned-out, ruined shell. Zechariah's vision shows us God's people as they really are, not just as they appear in human estimation. If chapter 3 drew back the veil on the supernatural and satanic opposition to God's people, here in chapter 4, the veil is drawn back once more, only now to show us God's perspective on those same struggling, weak people. The temple lampstands were gone. The city was destroyed. The people were destitute and despised. But there is a lampstand still burning in heaven that has never been and can never be removed. The previous lamps pale before the splendor of this lampstand. The people of God, as God himself views them, are unassailably beautiful and precious, untouched by the alterations of their outward circumstances. And they shine with a radiance that is not their own. Notice that the angel actually doesn't answer Zechariah's first request for an explanation until the second half of verse 10. Zechariah had asked, what are these? And eventually the angel explains there in verse 10, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. God is not merely watching from his temple. He's watching over his people for their good in response to their faithfulness. And so the seven lamps atop the rim of the central bowl in this lampstand, each of them burning with seven wicks, symbolize God's presence, burning by the oil of the Spirit of God in the midst of the people of God. And here we're being shown what Barry Webb called a community, a light with the presence of the all-seeking, all-knowing God who dwells in their midst. Isn't that beautiful? Other scriptures tell us more about the lampstand's significance. Isaiah 42, verse 6, tells us that Israel was to be a light to the nations. And Jesus takes up that phrase in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and he also borrows the image of the lampstand here in Zechariah 4 and says, now his disciples, that we are to be like lamps on a stand. Right? He calls us the light of the world. And then in Revelation 1, the apostle John sees seven golden lampstands which represent the seven churches addressed in the seven letters. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The Lord Jesus himself walks among his people. He's with them as he's promised. This is, this is the truth about God's church. This is God's description of us, of you, believer in Christ. You are a light. The presence of the all-seeing, all-knowing God, beautified by His own presence. In fact, as we read the New Testament, we see first and foremost that Jesus is Himself, the temple, and its light. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the Jews asked Him for a sign, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, And in three days, I will raise it up. 
And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Again, Jesus proclaimed of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now, Jesus is building a new temple with a new lampstand. He's building his church. And his church is beautiful. 1 Peter 2.4 says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brick by brick, stone by stone, person by person, Christ is building a beautiful sanctuary for his Father's glory. And we Christians are that temple and that spiritual house. Even though now rejected by the world, we are chosen and precious in God's sight. Ephesians 5, using the metaphor of a bride, says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. When you look at the church, locally, nationally, even globally, what do you see? I was confessing to my wife Cheryl this week, I've been so critical of God's church. I see so easily what's wrong with the church of the living God. I see her sins more clearly than I see her sanctification or her Savior. But Christ sees something else. He sees her sins, but he also sees his chosen and precious bride for whom he died. And he sees what she will become when he's done building. He sees the finished project, holy and without blemish, perfectly beautiful, full of splendor, radiant. On that final day, the Lord will say, My, look at my church. Oh Lord, give us eyes to see what you see. Zechariah calls us to recognize the true beauty of God's people. A beauty not apparent to the naked eye. The golden lampstands that once stood in the temple may well long be gone, and the temple may be torn down. The outward trappings of glory may fade or be taken from us. But if we are Christians, our beauty stands untouched before the Lord. There is a lampstand set before His throne that is the light, beautified by His own presence. So this vision corrects our vision. Recognize the splendor of God's sanctuary, which is Christ himself and his people, the church. And let that glorious vision encourage you to press on in the work that God has given you. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Second encouragement. Receive the supply of God's servants. The other feature of this mysterious vision has to do with the two olive trees standing on either side of the lampstand. So if the lampstand symbolizes God's people, ablaze with the presence of God, what do the two trees mean? And that's the question Zechariah twice asks the angel in verses 11 and 12. What are these two olive trees? What are these two branches of the olive trees? And the angel finally says in verse 14, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So these two trees stand for two servants who have a prominent role in sustaining the community. They are olive trees who supply oil to the lampstands. Now the identity of the two anointed ones is much debated. Here are three main views. The traditional view is that they represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, right? the main figures of uh, chapter 3 and, verse, and chapter 4. Joshua the high priest, anointed to serve in his role as the spiritual leader of the community. We saw that in chapter 3. And here's Zerubbabel, grandson of Jehoiakim, king of 
Judah, heir of the throne of David? Chapter 4. And so on this reading, right, on either side of the lampstand, you have a priest and you have a king supplying the sustaining oil of the Spirit. That very well may be what's in view here. Others have suggested that these are not actually two anointed ones, but two anointers. And you might even see a footnote there in your ESV translation that they're sons of new oil. And therefore, the two servants are not a priest and a king, but actually two prophets who do the anointing. Perhaps they represent Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied at this time. Prophets, you recall, were the ones who were said to stand in the council of the Lord. And furthermore, in Revelation chapter 11, we see this imagery repeated, and the two servants are explicitly identified as prophets. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Right, so on this reading, it's, it's the prophetic word that continuously supplies the oil that keeps the lamps burning. Still others have suggested these are just simply two angelic servants who act as God's agents in supplying unlimited divine assistance to the restored people of God. So which view is it? I don't know. <laughs> and I think there's good arguments for each. But you know, actually, we don't need to know their identity. Because what's, what's clear and what's important here is their function. Whoever these two servants are, these two men, are God's appointed means for sustaining the lampstands, God's people. And the point is that the Lord has not deserted His people to their own resources. Instead, He has provided His servants so that by them, His people might continue to shine as a lamp on a stand, the light of the world. The Lord's favor toward His people is eternal. His blessing toward them, inexhaustible. God's supply will never run dry. And therefore, God's people will never burn out. Brothers and sisters, we do not have the power within ourselves to keep ourselves shining. Psalm twenty-two twenty-nine says, None can keep alive his own soul. If it were left up to us, we would burn out. The oil would run dry. We would fall away from the faith, our wicks would break, our lights would be snuffed out, and we would be cast into the utter darkness. We depend upon the Lord for every breath and to sustain and supply our faith even until the end. David says in Psalm 18:28, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. John Calvin comments, it cannot possibly be that the grace of God should ever fail to preserve the church. As God possesses all abundance and bids His grace so to flow as that its abundance should never be diminished. diminished. So we ought to receive day by day God's supply of grace provided for us. Are you availing yourself of God's appointed means of grace? Are you abiding in the word and prayer? and the fellowship and oversight of God's church. These means of grace, when flowing through the channel of faith, are, they link us to God's endless flowing supply of grace in Jesus Christ. And it ultimately is Jesus in the end. John 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's Jesus who sustains the church with a never-ceasing supply of the Spirit of God so that its beauty shines forth. The church's beauty is untouched by the rubble of its earthly child because the Lord Jesus Himself sustains it. Just as the lampstand dependent on the oil that the two trees supplied, so too we depend on God's Spirit that Jesus Christ alone can give us. And He gives the Spirit without measure. And that brings us to our third encouragement that we see in this vision. We're to recognize the splendor of God's sanctuary. We're to receive the supply of God's servants. And thirdly, we're to rely on the strength of God's Spirit. Rely on the strength of God's Spirit. That beautiful picture 
of oil flowing unceasingly to the lampstand is meant to teach Zerubbabel a really important lesson. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. The book of Ezra gives us the historical narrative that complements this prophecy of Zechariah. Ezra chapter 3 verse 8 tells us Zerubbabel himself led the people to lay the foundation stone in the temple. Those 17 years before his own hands worked on it. But then we read in Ezra chapter 4 that soon after the work began, Israel's enemies sought to discourage them. They made them afraid to continue. They bribed their leaders. They even wrote petitions to the emperor to cause the work to stop. And for 17 years, that campaign had been extremely effective. And it looked like this work would never be completed. But it would. It would be completed. But not by might. And not by power. But by the Spirit of God. By the strength of that Spirit. And by no other means. God's Spirit empowers the work. The mountain of opposition that confronted Zerubbabel, that great mountain of worldly hatred, spiritual warfare, that mountain would be laid low. God's might, not man's, will be sufficient to overcome even the greatest obstacles. And Zerubbabel himself will place the final stone on the pinnacle of the temple while all the people celebrate shouting significantly grace grace lord bless this building grace lays the stone grace finishes the work grace from beginning to end the hands that laid the foundation will complete the rebuilding work but they will do so by grace by the spirit's enabling and by no other means so you see it's really god who is building a temple for himself in the world. Throughout the scriptures, God has done this by two great means. He's done this by his spirit, and he's done it by his king. There was that very first temple, the temple of creation itself, which God made by his spirit. And there he set our first father, Adam, in the sanctuary of the garden. You remember the Genesis account. They were to meet with him and commune with him there. Then in Exodus 31, when it came time to build the tabernacle, according to the regulations given to Moses, God filled Bezalel with the Holy Spirit, endowing him with the ability and the intelligence and the knowledge and the craftsmanship to complete the work, to build the tent that would be the site for God's communion with his people. And when the Jerusalem temple was built, God's king, David, filled with the Spirit, developed the plan, and his son, King Solomon, carried it out. So now here also, Zerubbabel is to rebuild the temple according to that same pattern established by his fathers in the power of the Spirit as God's ruler. And as he does so, Zerubbabel, like Adam and Bezalel and David and Solomon before him, is a type. He's a prefiguring of the final great king endowed with a spirit without measure who would build for himself the true temple, the final temple in which God will dwell forever. Not a temple of bricks and mortar, but the ultimate dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Sinners, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, built as living stones into fellowship with Jesus, the living stone, the chief cornerstone. Well, church, what does this mean for us today? We should take up the motto of verse 6. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Write that over every sermon, every worship service, every Sunday school lesson, every evangelistic conversation, every prayer meeting, every quiet time, every parental instruction, every difficult confrontation, every counseling session, every hospital visit, every funeral message. I can do nothing apart from God. Take up this motto. Remind yourself regularly 
It is never by human power, human strength, that God's cause makes progress in the world. It is never by our ingenuity or skill, by our brawn or brains, that sinners are saved or saints sanctified. It is always and only by His Spirit. If there is one desperate and urgent need for the Church of Jesus Christ in our day, it is surely a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God upon His people. How we need the reviving ministry of the Holy Spirit if the Gospel is to see days of power and influence in our land, in our churches, in our homes. That ought to be the great burden of our prayers for our church's ministry. O Lord, pour out your Spirit on the preaching of your Word and the faithful witness of your people. Rend the heavens and come down in a new torrent, a fresh effusion of the Spirit of holiness and grace. How we need the Spirit to do anything of lasting value. Our feeble efforts can avail nothing unless the Holy Spirit blesses us with His omnipotent power. To paraphrase A.C. Dixon, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon God's Spirit, we get what God can do. In ourselves, we are helpless. But Christ has sent a helper. That's one of the great lessons of this text. But there's another, le- another lesson here. It's easy to misunderstand God's words to Zerubbabel as being a general promise to all believers that God will overcome any and every obstacle we face in this life. But Zerubbabel serves Israel as a foreshadow of the faithful king who would obey God perfectly. This one greater than Zerubbabel has come in the fullness of the Spirit. And the mountain of this world's hostility that seemed to engulf him, even to snuff him out at Calvary, was in fact utterly laid low by him. And now, by the Spirit, He is building for Himself a temple as He gathers from every nation a people to Himself. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this spiritual house. And because of His resurrection from the dead, Jesus is now building His church in such a way that the gates of hell are not and cannot and will not prevail against Him. That's the message to Zerubbabel and for us today. Rely on the strength of God's Spirit as you join Jesus in His work of building God's temple for His Father's glory. Friends, maybe you're here this morning and you've been relying on your own might. You've come here trusting in your own power. You believe your own works and your own efforts will be acceptable on the day of God's judgment. Well, friend, the world may say your problems are fundamentally external, out there, outside of you. And that the solution is internal. Look within to your own resources. Believe in yourself. But the Bible says our problems are fundamentally internal. We are sinners in rebellion against God. And we deserve His just punishment of death and eternal separation in hell. But here's the good news. God in His mercy has provided an external solution. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on our humanity. He perfectly obeyed God's law, which we all have disobeyed. He died on the cross for our sins as our substitute, the just for the unjust. And then he, God raised Him from the dead on the third day. And He ascended into heaven as Lord of all. And now He commands everyone, everywhere, to repent, to turn from their rebellion, to lay that down, and to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life. And He's promised to give His Holy Spirit as a pledge of their final redemption to everyone who receives Him. So friend, I urge you, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Today can be the day of your salvation. Perhaps you're here and you feel insignificant, that you don't matter. You don't understand who you are or why you're here. Maybe you've been wasting your life 
not making the impact that God created you to have. We want to help you find meaning. And as one who wondrously made in God's image, to make an eternal difference. So that you can say, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, the gospel provides us with a cure, but it also gives us a cause. It offers the pardon and the purpose we need in the person of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the final encouragement. Rejoice in the significance of God's small things. Rejoice in the significance of God's small things. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. There are three observations I want us to see in this final encouragement. God's grace spurs us to action. That statement, His hands shall also complete it, indicates that whatever is meant by verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, it does not mean that Zerubbabel will be a passive observer. This is a temple that will be built by human hands. And so it is with God's new covenant temple. Ephesians 2 says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built together. And yet it's by the Spirit. That's how the Christian life works. Individually, corporately. Philippians 2, 12-13 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Right? We work because God works in us. God's grace in us spurs us to active participation in His kingdom purposes. Second observation. God's goal is the knowledge of Him. The Lord promises Zechariah that Zerubbabel's hands will complete the temple. Right? There's no question that this, bro- this building program is going to halt halfway. And that's true for us as believers. He has begun a good work in our hearts and He will certainly bring it to completion in the day of great things when Christ returns. God is faithful and will finish what He started in us. And note that the Lord links the completion with a confirmation. The you there. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That's a plural. You all. God's people. When they see the finished temple, they'll know Zechariah is a true prophet. And that the Lord sent him. Therefore, the Lord himself is totally true and trustworthy. We ought to know him. God's goal is for his people to know him and trust his word spoken by his prophets. Third observation. God's glory days are yet to come. Hear the challenge and the promise of verse 10. Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The constant challenge for God's people of every age is to evaluate reality according to God's standards rather than the world's. In Zechariah's day, many in the community had a difficult time seeing how their little temple in a backwater town could possibly be used by God to bring salvation to the nations. The walls of Jerusalem were still in ruins, the temple itself was small and unimpressive. It didn't even measure up to what had been there in the past, let alone what had been envisioned for the future. Zechariah's colleague, Haggai, in Haggai 2, verse 3, delivers God's message to the people. Who is left among you who saw this house, this temple, in its former glory? How do you see it now, the prophet asks. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? According to Ezra 3, Verse 12, when the foundation of this second temple was being laid, some of the very old people who could remember the first one, which Solomon had built, they broke into tears. They wept when they realized how small this one was going to be in comparison. 
As Zechariah himself put it, it was a day of small things. They were expecting the day of the Lord, and now it's the day of small things. The historical realities Zechariah faced makes his rhetoric here seem embarrassingly extravagant. How could such things be regarded by any level-headed person as fulfillments of God's promises? Did Zechariah get carried away? And like many false prophets and preachers before and since, lead his hearers on by filling them with false hopes, blowing bubbles that were sure to burst sooner or later. Like those in Zechariah's day, we might be tempted to dismiss the small things, to presume that God only works through the big and the flashy, the important and the impressive, the noticeable and the noteworthy. We are just as likely to overlook what at first glance seems insignificant, assuming it cannot make much of a difference in the world. You older saints, you might be particularly tempted to think about the glory days as in the past. Do you remember seasons of remarkable spiritual power? Particular sermons where God himself seemed to stand forth in might and grace to do a mighty work among us? Perhaps you feel those days are long gone. And these are the days of small things. How easy to despise the days in which we live. To dismiss them as nothing compared to the way things used to be. And even be tempted to live in the past. Oh, but not so fast, Zechariah would say to us. Not so fast. Do you see the promise in verse 10? Zerubbabel is going to stand forth with the plumb line. Or perhaps, I think, a better translation would be the ceremonial stone. The final stone in his hand. He's going to lay it down. And the work will finally be done. And the project will be complete at last. And your joy at the glory of the consummated work will obliterate your sorrow at the misery of the days gone by. You see, the rebuilding in Zechariah's day was not just preparation for the kingdom of God. It was participation in it. Zechariah understood that in these apparently small and insignificant events, the kingdom of God was breaking into this world. And this is why this powerful symbolic language of this vision is justified. It's not a flight from reality, but a wave investing the here and the now with true significance in the light of the coming of God's kingdom. Of course, the full manifestation of that kingdom is still future for us, as it was for Zechariah. There's a very definite not yet aspect of it that awaits. Its coming is what we pray for every day. But this aspect of Zechariah's message is still true and mightily encouraging. In a nutshell, it's this. Don't despise the day of small things. Because the kingdom of God is a big thing. And nothing associated with it can ever be insignificant. To be caught up in its coming. To be doing the work of the king, which he's given us, is an awesome privilege. Small beginnings lead to great endings when they are done through faith in God. After all, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Our lives are full of opportunities to follow Jesus in the small ways. Praying in our closets, serving in the nursery at church, visiting a shut-in, writing a note to someone who is depressed, bringing a meal to someone who is sick, inviting a college student to share a holiday in your home, visiting the hospitalized, serving at a crisis pregnancy center, caring for our families and what can feel like monotonous daily tasks like changing diapers or doing laundry or having a simple conversation about the Lord with a neighbor or co-worker. All of those may seem small, unless we remember that we have God who works not by might or by power, but by His Spirit. We have a God of lampstands and olive trees. We have a God of mangers and crosses. We have a God of the small things. Brothers and sisters, the point is this. The glory days are yet to come. The glory days are yet to come. 
Do you believe that? Don't let the way things are kill your faith or cripple your labors. The way things are is not the way things shall always be. The best is yet to come. The one Zerubbabel points us to is going to step forward one day and lay the final stone on his beautiful church. And every eye will see him. And the race will be finished. And the work will be done. Christ will finish what he started in your heart and in this world. And we will say with John in Revelation 21, Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the voice will say, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Here's the finished work, the completed temple. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus is building his temple, and he will finish the work. The glory days have not passed. They are still yet to come. So don't despise the day of small things. Because when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. So press on in the work of the gospel. Believe in God. Trust his promises. Don't grow weary in well-doing, but press on in faith. The glory days are yet to come. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Let's pray together.